The question comes from Romans 14.2. And it says, uh, questions for, I mean, in Romans 14.2 says, weak people eat only vegetables. <laughs> so tell us, tell us about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose I've been a vegetarian all my life just because my parents raised me that way and I didn't know anything different except uh, the time when I, I tried some, uh, some hamburger when my, um, some, some couple, a couple at our church that we called grandma and grandpa, they weren't really a grandma and grandpa, but they, we called them that and said, they said, you've got to try some meat. And so they, they gave me a quarter of a, I don't know what, McDonald's hamburger or something. And I tasted that and I thought, that, that's nasty. And, uh, but it was the wrong timing. I, I was, I was still a young, young kid, maybe nine or 10. So then it was when I was what? 15 or so that somebody decided that I needed to try some venison. And I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll try anything once. I don't think that anymore, but at the point, at that point I thought so. (laughs) And so I tried some, some venison and it tasted like I was sucking on a bloody sore. And so I decided that wasn't a good thing and I just haven't tried it since. So I'm really not the right person to, to, to compare this to. And, and uh, you might look at me and say, well, he's pretty weak. So um, it's possible that this actually does apply, but here's what I'd like to suggest. We, we need to let the Bible tell us what the Bible means. Exactly. And, and when you read Romans um, chapter 14, you might be tempted to come to any kind of conclusion. Like, for instance, he says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. But for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Now, one of the assumptions we could make is that he's just talking about clean and unclean meats, and so the, the person who eats anything, in, in, including scorpions, um, is fine, and the weak person is really the guy who refuses to eat everything. Um, but is that really what Paul is talking about? There is another letter that, that Paul wrote to one of the churches that addresses things in a very similar way, and it happens to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And he writes this uh, about a year before he wrote the letter to the Roman church. And here's what he says in Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 8.1. Now, concerning things offered to idols. So, so notice that he's, this part of the letter, he's focusing their attention on an issue that they're dealing with in this local church. And he continues on in verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols. So he clarifies it. Concerning things eating of things offered to idols. And he says, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one, the creator God. And he elaborates on that a little bit. And then in verse 7, he says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Not everybody understands this about God and the fact that these idols are not God. And so he says, for some with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Because, and so he's defining weakness as, as in um, immaturity in the faith. And, he, and they, they kind of still see the idol as something of, of um, significance, like the idol is actually a god. And so they think if I eat the food that was offered to the idol, then I'm eating food offered to a god, and, and, it, and it's a problem for their conscience. They feel like they're actually worshiping this idol. And, uh, and so that's the perspective that he's giving. And he says, but, be, but beware lest somehow, oh, sorry. Uh, it says for, uh, um, verse 8, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat or um, if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, knowledge that there is only one God, eating in an idol's temple, like taking the, the food, because they would have these markets right outside the temple, and you would buy your, your meat market was, was right there by the temple, and most of the meat was offered to the idols first before it was sold to people. So if somebody sees you um, in this, um, uh, taking food from the, the backside of this idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols, and, and consequently um, to feel like they're worshiping that idol? So, in Romans, he says the weak person eats only vegetables. I think he's talking about this very experience. He's saying a new person in the faith has decided that for their conscience sake, they're not going to go to the meat market and buy the, the food offered to the idols, and they'd rather just eat vegetables so they don't have to, to mess with their conscience. I think that's where Romans 14 is going. It has nothing to do with clean and unclean foods. It has to do with 
people wanting to, to step out in faith and saying, I want to follow God. Okay, well, thank you. Now for question number two. Is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus literal or figurative? Uh, that's a good question, too. You know, I think we're going to have to read it because I think it gives all the clues inside the parable. Now, just before we do read it, though, let me ask you, what is a parable? It's a, it's a what? Fiction. So, for example, Jesus tells the parable about the farmer who's casting out seed. It may be that he was looking over the field and he saw a farmer casting seed, points to it, and says, look. And then he tells the story about the seed that falls on different types of soils. It's, it may be true. It may be based in real life. Um, but it, its intention isn't just to tell a story. Its intention is to bring a lesson. And that's a really important thing. We're not looking at the events as um, literal events in the story. We're looking at the events as illustrative of some spiritual truth. Um, so let's read this in uh, Luke chapter 16. Do I have it in there? Uh, I don't know if I've, I've put it in there. There is a way, if you want to look, there's a way that you can add a passage. If you look on the top of your screen, a little box, and you might be able to put this in there. Luke 16, 19 to 31. But if you've got your Bible, you can also turn there with me. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. Rich man, he ate lavishly. Poor man who was sick. He was desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that, it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good, your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented." And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, and those, uh, and nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them, um, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So this is the story. Now, you should understand that Jesus has quite a few different people in his audience, his disciples and random people in the crowds. But the people he's talking to, the ones he's directing this parable to, are the religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, the priests. Those people were in that crowd as well. And, and when you look at, at that story, and you recognize he's teaching a spiritual principle, it's not very difficult to infer that these Pharisees are some connection, have some connection to this rich, rich man who fares sumptuously, who eats good things. What does the Bible say? What does Jesus say the bread represents? the Word, right? In fact, at one point, he said, I am the bread, and then he told people, eat me. He is the Word of God, and, and the, the Bible um, is God's Word, and we're supposed to consume that. We're supposed to eat that, and the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, they had lots and lots and lots of spiritual resources. They had God's Word in abundance without any trouble at all. So, I mean, they could, they, it wasn't hard for them to find it is what I'm saying. Um, so then you, you keep reading and you, you see this story and you ask yourself, is this literal? Is Jesus telling a story about how it actually happens when you die? Um, well, we've studied the subject and we can find no comparison to this in the rest of scriptures. So where did Jesus get this? Uh, the, the story that he told about um, uh, going to Hades and being in torment and Abraham's bosom and stuff is a story that the Jews had taken from Greek mythology and mingled with their own teachings. Has that happened before? 
We've kind of studied about that in the Middle Ages, how paganism entered the Christian church. Well, paganism was entering the Jewish community. It was actually, um, there there was all kinds of beliefs at Jesus' time. The Sadducees, a group of, of Jews, didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They were basically atheist Jews. Um, and you see them today. There's, there's quite a few Jews who don't really, I mean, their religion is really just a tradition. Um, but then there was the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were really, really diligent, sticklers for the law kind of stuff. And so Jesus is taking um, a story, a pagan story that's part of their um, mixed culture, and he's communicating spiritual truth through it. And here's several reasons why this needs to be figurative and can't be literal. Um, First of all, Lazarus is carried to Abraham's bosom. Let me just ask you this. Is Abraham's bosom a literal place? An awful big bosom. It would be an awful, yeah, we're talking about his chest, right? His his embrace. And so, does Abraham have enough enough, uh, arm span in order to, to take everybody in? No, it can't, that can't be literal. We're talking about, you know, some would say, well, it's about paradise. Okay. Number two, the rich man is buried in a grave in verse 22. Buried in a grave. Does anybody believe that, that bodies from graves are, are supernaturally carried to some place of torment? No. No, you can go and you can dig up a grave, and what do you find there? You find the remains, right? You find, you find bones. So we're not thinking this is literal. This is just metaphorical at best. Uh, third, the rich man could talk to Abraham. From hell to heaven, he can shout really loud. I mean, have, have you ever been in a forest fire? Anybody been near a forest fire? How, what does it sound like, Jeff? It's a little noisy. <laughs> a little noisy, yeah. Uh, just stand near a, a big crackling fire, and, uh, and that's already noisy. But if it's a forest fire blazing across, well, it, it's going to be really loud. You can't talk over that, much less talk to heaven. No, this can't be a literal story. And fourthly, the, the rich man asks Abraham to, to send Lazarus with a drop of water. Okay, so if his body's in the grave, and this is not a literal physical body, would a drop of water help? Never seen it help on a big fire before. <laughs> it wouldn't help even if it was a real body, would it? So, so in, in every situation that you can find, the story has to be figurative. And, and when you look in the, the, the rest of the, the New Testament, when you read the rest of the story of Jesus, you find it's not very long after this that, that Lazarus, who happens to be the nephew of Simon, one of the Sanhedrin, and... He, he's a well-connected, spiritually well-connected man, and his nephew dies, and he's buried, and he's in the tomb for four days when Jesus finally comes, and his name was Lazarus. And I don't think that's a coincidence. The rich man doesn't get a name, but Lazarus gets a name. And when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, guess what the rich men, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, Simon's friends, guess what they decide that they're going to do? They say, they, the Bible says that they, from that moment on, plotted Jesus' death and Lazarus' death too. And, and so when Jesus says that, um, in this story, Abraham is saying that, that uh, even if they send somebody back from the dead, they won't believe, it's played out in actual real life. And the spiritual lesson, I think, is for the Pharisees, rebuking the Jewish nation, having the riches of heaven, but ignoring the poor people, the, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, even their own people, um, ignoring their spiritual need. And I think that's a, an important lesson for us, too. God has given us, He's given us so many good things, and He doesn't want us to hoard them to ourselves. We shouldn't be like the rich man. We should give away generously to those in need around us. Um, but it's also, important, it's also important for us to recognize this spiritual truth that, that we need to find God's truth from, well, from the Bible. Not from people who've come back from the dead, not from um, new teachings from books outside the Bible that, that contradict the Bible. There's, there's, no, there, there's no replacement for God's Word. And unless we believe God's Word, there's nothing else that's going to help not even if somebody comes back from the dead. Yeah. Well, good answer. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before we let you carry on here, we have one more gift 
to give out tonight. And that gift is a DVD set of the, seventh, uh, the, the seven days of Noah. And tonight, this is going out to Joy Davis. Oh, nice. <laughs> so if you want to come up and grab that. Here, I'll, I'll take your mic, and why don't you go give it to her? All right. Thank you, Jeff. If you haven't seen that one yet, it's a really good one. And if you have, share it with somebody who hasn't. (laughs) Well, tonight we get to do something that I'm looking forward to. We get to explore uh, the personal side of prophecy. See, the the book of Revelation is a revelation of who? Jesus Jesus Christ. And, And when you see what's happening in the book of Revelation, what we see is a God who He's, he's got the whole world in his hands, right? <laughs> he's got the future planned out for us, and, and he's trustworthy. Now, in this series, we've been exploring Daniel and Revelation. We've been looking at all kinds of different things, and, and uh, you probably recognize that we haven't covered everything. There's a lot more to dig into, and we're not going to go for another month to try to do that. Um, <laughs> instead, um, later this year, I'm going to do a, a weekly sermon series on the book of Daniel. We've covered four chapters in Daniel, but we're going to get to do, do all 12 of them later this year, and that's going to be lots of fun. We get to, to dive into some of the nitty-gritty. Um, you might have noticed that we've focused on um, some really significant chapters in the book of Revelation, uh, but... Um, we barely touched on the seven churches, Revelation 18 and 19, and the trumpets, and the, the plagues of Revelation 16. We, we barely, we just mentioned them, um, recognizing that they exist, but we, we didn't dive into them to figure out what the Bible says about them. Um, so there's, there's lots more that we could learn. But tonight, I want to I make this more personal, and I want to see not just the future, the, the heavenly plan God has for us, but what's God's involvement in our lives today? Some people would like to suggest that God is out there somewhere, but kind of disengaged and uninterested in your life and mine. And we do this legal thing where we give our hearts to Jesus, and then He takes us to heaven, and and we get to play harps, or we get to live in mansions or something like this. Um, But it's just not a real connection. And what I see in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, is that God wants a relationship with us. He desires us. He's making a place for us. He's drawing us to Him, right? He, he wants to be with us. And that means he, he cares about a relationship. So I want to explore that with you tonight in a little bit of detail. And uh, let's pray as we get started. Father in heaven, as I tell my story, I pray that you would be glorified, not because I have anything to offer, but because you've been so amazing. Please show us the truth from your word and help us grow our faith in you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid, and, and you might be surprised, this is me when I was 13. How old do I look there? <laughs> like 10, yeah. <laughs> I was 13 in that picture. And, uh, well, let's just say that when I was younger, I looked even younger. Um, people say that I look young today, but anyway. So when I was a kid, a little bit younger than this, I think I was six years old, and uh, I was that kid that, that nobody wanted to be friends with. And, I mean, it wasn't that I was unfriendly. It was just that, uh, you know, kids my own age kind of looked at me as though I was radioactive. Like, like, if they were friends with me, something wrong would happen. And, uh, and honestly, I probably was. I, I exaggerated quite a lot. Um, well, just, I lied. Um, <laughs> People didn't seem to, to, to appreciate that. I was a know-it-all. I, I knew something about everything. I kind of still have that problem today. Please forgive me if you, if you ever see that. Just let me know. Um, I was that pesky kid that, that didn't understand boundaries and kept stepping into people's, um, well, into people's space when it was inappropriate to do so. It's not really a mystery that I didn't have a lot of friends, but, but regardless of my personality or my problems, it was a really hard thing for me that I didn't have friends. A deep, a deep wound in my little kid's soul that people didn't like me, that they didn't want to be around me. 
Was I acceptable? Would I ever amount to anything? Would anyone want to be my friend? I I mean, I couldn't put those emotions into so many words, but I felt them quite deeply. And my precious mother repeatedly reminded me that God had a plan for my future. In spite of the trials, maybe even through the trials, God was still at work. And one of the things that she did with us that I remember vividly she took my sister and I onto that waterbed. You ever had a waterbed? Those things are pretty fun for a kid, but I cannot imagine sleeping on one. No. Anyway, but she'd take us onto her waterbed and she'd uh, and she'd read this this book. Actually, actually it was this book, different cover than the one I'm showing you on the screen, but the story of redemption. And in this book, she she um, read stories about. Um, heaven and how Lucifer fell and about Adam and Eve and the, the trial in the garden and how they, they rejected God um, and accepted the snakes, the serpents' um, lies. I, that we read about the flood and about Abraham, and we read about the Israelites in the wilderness. We read about the um, Jesus coming and uh, the, the New Testament church and the apostasy and the dark ages, and we read about the, the light coming back, the truth coming back as people found God's Word again in the Reformation. And we, we read about, is this sounding like stuff we've talked about this month? <laughs> we, we've read about the, um, how the, the stories of Daniel and Revelation started to be understood better in the 1800s, the 19th century there. And, and, uh, and we read about the, the end of time, the coming of Jesus, heaven, the thousand years, the, the new earth. We read about all those things, and, and my little heart was just filled up with the excitement of it all. I, I dreamed about heaven. We read verses like this one, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And we read about the second coming. Um, First Thessalonians describes it, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord." Have you imagined this before? Have you just spent some time imagining what this is going to be like? I know I did, and I dreamed about it at night, and those were good dreams, precious dreams. The most amazing sight anybody could ever see, and and I remember dreaming about myself standing there having some kind of response similar to this. Behold, this is our God. We've waited for Him, and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. I I was excited about Jesus' soon return. And uh, at that time, I was too young to read, but my my mother promised, I I asked her if I could have the book, and my mother promised that she would give me one when I was old enough to read. And and this is what she wrote in in the book that she gave me. It was June 21, 1989. I was not quite nine years old. When you were around six years old, we were reading this book together, and you asked if you could have it. I said you could could have it when you could read, and you're nearly nine now, and you read quite well. As you read this book, talk to your Heavenly Father. Ask Him to help you understand. If you have trouble with a word, look it up in your dictionary or ask uh, ask for help. You will find the story more precious if you understand the words. God will bless you, my son, and someday you will be a great worker for him because your heart is wanting him. Love the Lord and serve him always the best you know how. One day soon he will place a golden crown upon your head if you stay obedient to him and love him more than yourself. I don't know what your situation in life is. Maybe, maybe you had trouble making friends like me. <laughs> maybe that wasn't your thing. Um, maybe maybe in your life you're looking around and maybe some transition has happened, some change, and you look around and you say, what's next? What's going to happen? Sometimes it's a financial stressor where you just feel like you can never get your head above water, and you're wondering what's going to happen next? What's coming down the pike? Sometimes it's our own stupidity. We make choices that put us in stupid places, right? And sometimes it's somebody else's sin that harms us, and it comes in and wreaks havoc. Now, we are fundamentally broken people. 
We make mistakes. Other people make mistakes. Our lives are messed up by them. And, uh, and it's almost like, well, I don't know about you, but sometimes our mistakes from the past come clawing back to haunt us during our, our time now, right? Sometimes it's soul-wrenching loss that seems to threaten the foundation of our sanity. But one, one reason or another, we all have to face that question is, what, what are you doing, God? Or is there really a God? <laughs> and we, we might see by faith heaven, but wonder about our next step. Like me when I was a, a young boy, trying to figure out why nobody wanted me, why nobody was my friend. I took comfort in these words of Jesus, that He was going to come and, and save me, that He was making a place just for me, that He wanted me. That was exciting for me. But let's just take a couple minutes tonight, and let's explore this, what is God's plan for my life question. First of all, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is a really important passage. For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. If you understand the context that Jeremiah is writing this in, then you know how, how special these words are. Israel was in the midst of the worst apostasy that, that they had really ever been in. They, they were offering their, their um, children to idols, burning them as sacrifices on the, on the altar of Molech. They were worshiping false gods in the temple of the Lord. It was horrible stuff that these people were doing, and God sees, he, he sees all of this, and He says, I have a plan for you. Are you in a hard place? Maybe it's a place of your own making. Maybe it's something that other people have pushed into you. Maybe it's just life that's happened, but are, are you in a hard place and wondering if God sees you with pity, if He cares about where you are? He says, I have, I have a plan for you. And he says, I have, I have thoughts about you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Maybe it's that nagging, negative thought that, that uh, you keep pushing yourself down. I'm not worth it. Nobody likes me. That was me when I was a kid. Um, sometimes it happens today too, but um, that, that nagging thought that just keeps coming in, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to get victory over this problem. Jesus wants you to think about these words. I know the thoughts I think towards you. Your thoughts might be all messed up, but my thoughts are thoughts of a future and thoughts of hope, good things that He has planned. God is saying He's got a plan for you. And I think that's, that's one of the most important things for us to recognize, that salvation absolutely is about heaven and the new earth and all the stuff that prophecy has been pointing us to, but it's also about right now. It's about today. It's about the fact that God has a plan for you. And it's, and it's a plan for tomorrow, and it's a plan for the next day, and it's a plan for every day after that. God has a plan just for you. Look at this. Proverbs 16, 9, he says, "'A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps.'" I mean, if you and I say to God, I want your future for my life, I want your plans to be worked out in me, then, I mean, this is plans for work, plans for play, plans for education, plans for relationship. I want all of those things to be your plans, God. And you know what Jesus is, is, is uh, inviting us to do when we say that? He's inviting us to say this, your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. Do what you want in my life. And he says, I've got plans for you, and all we have to do is say, okay, God, your will be done. Your will be done. Please, please direct my steps. When I was 15, a new pastor came to my church, and uh, this is a church that got 30 people in attendance on a good day. Last time I went back, there was 11 of us, and that included my wife and I, so it was a small church. And we get this new pastor, and there's five of them, pastor and his wife and three kids, and one of them happened to be just a year younger than me. And she was, she was a very nice young lady. And I fell for her. <laughs> I wanted to spend every moment I could with that family. They were so much fun. Um, and uh, by the time I was 18 or 19, um, I would have told you that I believed God's plan was for me to marry that girl. 
Well, then about that time, she went off to college, different college than I was going to. She met a guy, different guy than me. Um, They started dating, and not too long later, they were married. Clearly, that was not God's plan for my life. And you wonder sometimes when you go through experiences where it seems like, you know, my plan, my path, the thing that I've planned out just isn't working out. Maybe God isn't involved. Maybe He doesn't care about where my life is headed. And, And there's a temptation to think that. But now that when I look back, what I see is a completely different story. Uh, Pastor Steve took me under his wing as a 16-year-old boy, and he, he took me out every week to do visitation with people, and he taught me what it is to, to minister to people. And, and because of his influence in my life, that desire to serve God and uh, to work for Him grew inside me. Because of Pastor Steve, because of that family's influence in my life, I'm here today. I think maybe God's plan wasn't for me to marry that girl, but His plan was certainly for that family to influence my life towards Him. And I don't know what your life is is like, what situation you've got, but if you're looking at at stuff and you're saying, oh, this can't be God's plan, well, give it some time, and you might see from a different perspective what God is doing I will always be grateful for that family's kind friendship and for their influence in helping me to recognize God's calling on my life. I had a plan, but praise God, He directed my steps. It's important, I think, for us to take our plans to God every day. You have plans. You wake up in the morning and you got your agenda, you got your calendar. Well, at least I do. I'm I'm a a young man still working. If, If you're retired, maybe you don't have a calendar anymore and you don't worry about plans. That's not true, right? You, you actually do have a Okay, so you do have plans still. And it's important that we take those plans to God every day. And we say, God, here's my plan. Would you direct my steps, please? Would you take over what's going to happen in my day? But if you're anything like me, you probably hold on to those plans a little tighter than you should. And you try to keep, you try to make sure that they happen. As a kid, I loved to fly. And when I was nine, my parents took me, this is September 1989, and they took me to the Huntsville, um, is that right? I'm pretty sure it was Huntsville. No, the Alabama, yeah, Huntsville, Alabama. Um, the Huntsville Space and, and Air and Space Museum or whatever it's called. And that was, that was a dream. I'd never been to anything like that before. It was amazing. I, I'd always, or I had been talking for at least some time about uh, wanting to be a pilot, wanting to be an astronaut. And, uh, and you know what? They, they, they advertised this thing called Space Camp. And I really, really, really wanted to go. But as my life progressed, we didn't have the money for space camp, and, and we didn't have the money for the, the, the pilot's license thing, and, and I didn't even know where I'd get a pilot's license, and, and it just never worked out. But it was probably 12 years of my life, uh, from, from uh, the time I was nine to about, yeah, about 22, I was thinking that that was kind of the direction I was going, that I was going to end up being a pilot. Until one day, I, uh, I was gifted on my 22nd birthday, I was gifted a, a half-hour lesson of flying. Now, I'd been in a small plane before, but it'd been a while, and I go up in the air over Arizona, and, uh, and it's, they, you get these things called thermals, and, uh, and so you're flying along in this little Cessna 150, the tiniest little plane ever, and, uh, and you're going along and suddenly you hit one of these thermals and it's, and it's this pocket of air that's just rising fat rather quickly and suddenly your heart is somewhere down in your seat and, uh, and you feel like, like you're just being thrown into the air. And then you pass through that thermal and you fall back down and it feels like you drop 15 feet and your heart's somewhere up in the ceiling and you feel like you're going to throw up. And I got done with that half hour lesson and I said, thank you, Lord, that I have not started to pursue this career because I don't think I could handle that. God knows the direction that He wants you to go. And, you know, even though my plan was, and I hoped to try to make this happen, um, to be a pilot... I don't think that that life would satisfy me. I've learned a little bit more about what pilots do, and there's some exciting times, but it's also a lot of time away from family. And that's just not the thing that I think God has designed me for. Did you know that God speaks to us in different ways? One of the ways that He speaks to us is my experience with flying. 
the lack of opportunity. <laughs> God sometimes opens doors and closes doors, right? Well, the, the first way I think that God speaks to us is through the Bible. You can call this His revealed will. If God says in the Bible, thou shalt not commit adultery, and you go and you find some beautiful young lady or some handsome man, and, uh, and you just think, oh, they're my soulmate. I made such a mistake marrying this person. Um, uh, this person is so much better for me. Um, and, and we love each other. And, you know, isn't, isn't intimacy a natural outcome of that love? Well, that's uh, horrible reasoning, by the way. Um, <laughs> the Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. The commitment you've made to your spouse is a commitment that you need to honor. So if, you, if you're tempted to go down a path that is contrary to God's Word, the, the truth is that that's not God's plan. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You don't need to talk to a counselor. You don't need to ask advice from wise people. All you need to do is read it in the Bible and say, oops, I'm wrong, and tell that person um, that, that you just can't be their friend anymore because the Bible said so. God reveals His will in our lives through the Word. And then there's another way, and, and it's kind of the way of my... Uh, my, my pilot's license or lack thereof. Um, it's providential leadings. That's the way that some people term it anyway. It's, it's the Holy Spirit opening opportunities up or closing them down. And so if, if you are inclined towards something, a desire that you have, maybe it's to buy a house or to sell a house or maybe it's to um, do this thing or that thing, a job or a, um, a, a leisure thing, and, uh, and you say, Lord, please lead in this, and you lay it at His feet, the Holy Spirit has some really unique and fun ways of shutting things down when He doesn't want it, or opening things up when He does. And I bet you have a story about that in your life, a story where you know that God opened a door and closed another one so that you would be directed in the way He wants you to go. And then finally, God whispers, sometimes shouts, but usually whispers with impressions on our hearts to say, this is the way, walk ye in it. And you can find that in Isaiah 30, verse 21, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Now, I just want to point out that this is probably the least reliable way that God speaks to us. Because, well, you want to know why? Because you and I have a voice that's a lot louder than God's voice usually is. And we talk to ourselves way too much. And so we tell ourselves, wouldn't it be great if I had? And then our brain starts working up all the reasons why that is a good idea. That's not the most reliable way that God speaks to us. But what happens is if, if you have two open doors, two opportunities to do something, and they both seem like they line up with God's Word, then, then we, we take that to God and say, which one, Lord? Please, please help me to understand which one. And if we do that humbly, and we are submitting ourselves to Him, truly submitting ourselves to Him, then the, the, the Holy Spirit promises that He'll say, this is the way. Whether you turn to the right or turn to the left, this is the way, walk ye in it. And He does that through impressions on our heart. And still, with all of these good things, we make mistakes, don't we? we? We make mistakes and we choose things that aren't the best for us. I've made lots and lots and lots of mistakes in my life, as you probably have too. And sometimes it's not our mistakes. Sometimes it's other people's mistakes that mess our lives up. They, and and sin, sin just messes everything up anyway. Sometimes it's our sin. Sometimes it's theirs. Sometimes it's our own stupidity and selfish choices. Sometimes it's somebody else's. But here's my question. When we make stupid mistakes and we find ourselves in horrible situations, has God abandoned us? Does He no longer have a plan for our lives? In fact, Israel found themselves in that very situation when God says, I know the thoughts I think towards you. I have thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. It was in a bad situation that God wanted them to know that He had thoughts for them, that He loved them. And so maybe you've messed something up, maybe somebody else has messed something up, but, but God says this, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. Did you hear that? If you love Jesus, He can take the worst thing and make it into something beautiful, something good. It doesn't mean that God designed the, the, the stupid thing that you ended up in. We, we do that ourselves, right? But God designs the solution. And, he, and he's even able to make that bad decision something that is beautiful for his kingdom. 
When I was a kid, there was somebody who did something to me that broke my spirit, and it probably contributed somewhat to my problem-making friends. Um, certainly, my, my uh, questions about my value and self-doubt, questions about my purpose. And uh, have you ever heard that phrase, hurt people, hurt people? Yeah, that's a real thing. When somebody pokes you, you're often tempted to reach out and poke somebody else. When somebody harms you, you're often tempted to harm somebody else. And sometimes that's kind of built into our psyche when we're hurt by somebody else. There's things that need to heal, and really that only Jesus can heal. And when, they, when it's not healed, the natural outcome is that we end up doing the same things. I mean, think about it. Well, and, and, and I should tell you that my experience was I was hurt as a kid, and, and then I ended up making a friend eventually, and uh, I ended up bringing that same hurt into their life. Hurt people hurt people. God said it would be this way. He said in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is heaven, in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down, to them, bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And here's the key verse, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Wow. What, what, is that, what does that do? What's the impact of this? Well, this is the, I mean, your grandfather was an alcoholic, and your father became an alcoholic. You are much more likely to be an alcoholic because of their influence and because of the genes they passed down. That's just the reality. Um, if you grew up in, a, in a, a home where your grandparent was abusive, and then your, your mom experienced that abuse from her father, and she goes and she marries somebody who's abusive as well. And so you experience abuse in your, in your home growing up. And guess what? Not wanting to, really, really not wanting to repeat the mistakes of your parents, you might find yourself saying some of the same messed up things that you heard your father say. That's just the reality of our experience. Generational sins, things that are passed down from one generation to the other. But God has a plan. And he says, he's inserting himself into the story. And he says, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And, and first he had he'd mentioned to the third and fourth generation. And I think that it's, it's accurate to say, but showing mercy to thousands of generations, to them who love me and keep my commandments. See, the fact that, that we've experienced bad things does not mean it needs to be passed on to our children. God says He's inserting a, a plan of mercy, an opportunity to cut, to short-circuit the sin in our, in our lives so that the next generation doesn't have to experience it. That's God's plan, and that's God's power. And this story, this story has been repeated since the time of Cain. Remember Cain, he, he murders his brother, goes off, starts a city, and guess what happens with his children? They do worse things than Cain did. Just a few verses and you find horrible stuff happening in Cain's family, generational sin. But then you find after, after the Tower of Babel, you have people like Abraham. And Abraham says, yes to God. I want to follow God, he says. And his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And, and out of him came this, this nation that would represent God in the world. God says He has mercy to give. And you know what? He, he says that it's a, we love, our, our interest in Him is a result of His interest in us. We love because He first loved us. And, and He says when we do that, when we respond to His love, to His pulling at our hearts, um, then He makes us into something new. This is His promise of mercy. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's God's promise, new things. Do you want to have something new in your life? Do you want to be somebody new? God has promised that. In Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. 
He's designing us. And all we have to do is say, your will be done in my life, just like it is in heaven. And you can see that we're all, all the way back to Revelation chapter 14, where we have a group of people that follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Is this an instantaneous, magical event when God creates us into something new? I mean, yes and no, not really. <laughs> it's one of those things where, well, Paul says, I surrender, I die daily. And I think that that's one of the most important things that we can do is every morning we say to God, I'm yours today. Make me into whatever thing you want me to be. And it's, it's through that permission that he gives us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit starts to do things in our lives and starts to bear fruit. He says it like this in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. Any, any of those in there that you feel like, I could use a little more of that, Lord. <laughs> Please give me some more of that patience or some more of that joy or some more of that kindness or some more of that self-control. And he says, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And there's the key right there, the crucifying the flesh, that's the surrender. That's me saying, God, your will, not mine. Your plan, not mine. Your way, not mine. Please direct my steps. There was a time in my life that I seriously questioned the reality of God. And it's not one of those situations where I doubted that God existed. It's more like, you know, when you were a kid and you got really mad at your parents and you just thought they were being totally unfair and you decided you wanted to run away? That's how I felt. It was a dark time when both my wife and I were dealing with some of that past clawing back into our, into our present and, and messing with us, and it was, it was a really hard time. I'm sure you understand those emotions, and, and when you have those emotions, you tend to kind of latch on to things, right? And I started to, I started to covet. We lived in this RV, and it, it's it was a long RV, and it was sufficient for us. We lived in it for four years. But um, if you've ever lived in an RV before, you know that, well, I don't know, maybe not, maybe not you, but we were really wanting a change. <laughs> we wanted roots. We were moving around every three, three weeks to a couple months because of the ministry we're working in. Um, and, and I would look around, and I would see people that had nice houses. And I had this loan on this stupid RV that was falling apart and molding under me. Um, people were driving around Teslas and new F-150s, and I was driving around this, this uh, 2004 dually that was so big that my mom, no offense to her, but she, she pulled around a corner and, and uh, she took the wheelbase off or the wheel um, fender off because it's so wide she didn't know how to drive the thing. And it was just so awkward. I, I, I didn't want what we had. I was dissatisfied, and I, I pointed my finger at God, and I said, why can't we have that? Why, why can't we live in the same place for 20, 30 years and pay off a mortgage? Why can't we, why can't we, why can't we? To be fair, God had been very clear that He had had this plan, that we were going to go to, the, to, to live in this RV, and, and we had a specific mission for, for that time. And so there's no reason why I should have been dissatisfied. Lots of other people had worse off than we did, so I was just being covetous, plain and simple. And uh, <clears throat> along with uh, our personal crisis, that year my boss had told me that the school that I was in charge of would be shutting down at the end of the year. It was a school that they had asked me to start. I'd poured my heart into it, 80-hour weeks. I'd, I'd put a lot of effort into it. And after five years, they were pulling the funding and, and letting me go. Not because I'd done a bad job, they said. Of course, you know, they always say that. Just, you know, make me feel good. And we wrestled and struggled. What is God doing in our lives? Why is He doing this? And we've got the personal crisis that's already making our life kind of dark. And then we pray, God, what are you doing? Why? And He doesn't seem to answer. It's like silence from heaven. You ever had that experience where you ask God for something and nothing comes back? There was a part of me that was interested in what God had to say, and a part of me that I didn't really want to hear from God. And so, my wife and I, mostly me, 
um, started looking around at options. I mean, I had the truck, maybe I could start a, a landscaping business, right? I, I, I had a family in Tennessee, maybe I could move there and I could work for some organization. I started looking through um, different places, maybe a real estate thing, uh, sales, I was pretty good at that, maybe, you know, this, that. I, I've, I looked at all kinds of options. I updated my resume, I think I've got I think I've still got that resume sitting on, in my computer somewhere. It was the, the secular version. I've worked in ministry since I was 16. And so I, I had to try to figure out, how do you say this in a way that would make somebody who doesn't really care much about religion um, think that I have something to offer their company, right? So I'm, I'm working through all these things and putting my name up on job boards. And, and, and I, I even called a couple people. No response from them. I don't know why, but uh, no response. Um, and... And we just had this, this time of silence and struggle. One day I took Joel out to eat, and it was, it was one of those moments where we'd, we'd processed this long enough, and we'd uh, kicked against the brick wall long enough that we were, we were at that moment together where we were just going to give it to God. And we sat across the table from each other holding hands, and we both just kind of sighed. And both of us knew what was going on, and, and one of us, I forget who, said, maybe we should just give it all to God. Stop looking for an alternative in ministry and just let God be the one that leads us into something. Let Him be the one that opens doors. And so we, we held hands and we prayed together and we gave our situation to the Lord. And we said to Him, if you want us to live in the RV for longer, then okay, if you want us to stay here, then great. If you want us to move somewhere else, then fine. If you want us to, whatever you want us to do, God, we're your servants. Please direct our steps. And <laughs> we told him what we wanted. We said, God, if, if it's not too much to ask, could, could you put us in a place where we could stay for a little while and make some friends and develop some, some roots a little bit? And God, would you mind giving us a three-bedroom, two-bath house, something that we could have the kids in their, each in their own rooms? And, and uh, would it be too much to ask if we had a, a fenced backyard so the kids could play? And, and, and please, could I have a, a garage that I could put a wood shop in? Well, we prayed. We left it in God's hands and said, whatever. Um, left the restaurant smiling, and, and we had no idea what was going to happen next. And I kid you not, it was the very next morning that I got a call from a guy I had never heard from before. And he said, Jason, would you come and be an intern pastor in Walla Walla? We don't need you. The, th- the, the, the job isn't even starting until, until July. And our, and our school would have been done and closed the beginning of June. It doesn't start till July. We'll pay for your move. And I thought to myself, I'm the director of a school, and I'm going to be an intern pastor. I like that idea. No more 80-hour weeks. Um, Walla Walla. We have friends in Walla Walla. Yeah. So we, we laid it before the Lord. We prayed. We asked some counselors. And a couple days later, we, we said, yes, we'll go. And they, they paid for us to come out and look at property and whatnot and plan our, our, our move and stuff. And, and we get out there and we're thinking, well, we've got this RV and we have zero money. What are we going to do? Um, we must, we'll just rent and then we'll, we'll put some money in savings until we can buy something. And we look around and there's nothing for rent that's worth anything. And, and the, the price for a 3-2 with a garage and a fenced backyard was hundreds of dollars more than we could afford. And we prayed and we, and we looked and we prayed and we said, well, God's got something in mind. And we, we stumbled across a guy, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but we, t- we talked to a, a, a loan officer at a little, uh, a little local bank. And you know what he gave us? He gave us a really good interest, fixed rate loan, zero down. And we were able to buy a 3-2 house with a fenced backyard and a little garage that I could put a workshop in. And it cost us a little bit less than our, we had budgeted. I'm not saying that everything always works out like you want it to. But what I am saying is that sometimes it's really hard. And in the hard times, we need to surrender to God. And He may take us exactly where we want to go. Or he may take us somewhere quite a bit different. But when we surrender ourselves to him, it's always going to be sweeter and happier. I don't know where God is leading next, but I do know that he is directing my path. 
And he directed it all the way here to North Idaho to be your friend. Well, hopefully, I mean, you're my friends anyway. <laughs> hopefully, I'll be your friend. Um, and and he's, he's led us to a situation that's, that's pleasant. It's not always pleasant. Our lives are not always what we want them to be. But God has led us here. And I'm excited that I'm in God's hands. Look at Psalm 34. David says this, This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. I keep bringing up this idea of trouble because we all face it. And, and sometimes our lives are peaceful and, and then we, they're interrupted by a problem. And it's in those trouble moments that we get to say, Am I, do I have faith? Am I trusting God? Is He the one that's directing my path or am I going to take control and try to fix my life? He keeps on going and he says, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. And then he says this, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who trusts in him. Taste and see. This is the key to faith. Faith is saying, I believe you, God, and I'm going to take a step in faith. For me and Joel, that step of faith was stopping looking for another job and letting God direct us. For you, that might be something different. I don't know what your step of faith is going to be, but it's, it's God's invitation to taste Him, to taste and see that He is good. His plans for you are good. His thoughts for you are of peace and not of evil. There's a story in the book Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read it, it's a great book to read. Um, written a little while back, so read the updated version by a guy named Jim Pappas and you'll be happier. But um, it's, it's called Pilgrim's Progress and it's an allegory of the Christian life. And there's this one moment where, pilgrim, where, where the pilgrim... Christian, where Christian and Hopeful are walking side by side and they're chatting and whatnot, and they find that the road is, is rough and, and, and rocky and uncomfortable, and they see that there's this fence. And on the other side of the fence is this pleasant field, a pasture land, and they thought, let's just walk over there. Well, Christian did. Hopeful said, I don't think this is a good idea. But then there is this, this little stile, a little um, a ladder to climb over the, the fence. And he's like, hey, look, there's even a stile there. Let's, let's climb over. And look, you, as far as you can see, the pasture is right beside the, the, the king's highway, the narrow way. Let's just go over there. And so instead of walking in God's path, Christian decides that he's going to walk in his own path. And before long, they get lost in conversation, enjoying the pleasantness of the, of the pasture, and they realize that they can't see the king's path anymore. And, and one thing leads to another. It's dark. They can't find a place to stay. They, the rain starts coming down. They slip and slide into this um, hole uh, that really was designed. And, and by the morning, in their trap, they look up and they see the giant, the giant despair, who gets, him, gets them in, their, in his grasp and takes him to a dungeon in Doubting Castle. And you see, that's, that's what our life is like. We have the King's Highway and then we have our way. And our way might seem pleasant today, but in the end, it always leads to the same place, being captive by despair and held in chains in the castle of doubt. Jesus invites us to a radically different life than anything that we can imagine. Our, our tendency is towards self-promotion, and God invites us not to be the leader, but to be the servant. Our tendency is to try to do things ourselves. But he says, if you want to gain your life, then you got to lose your life. It's an upside-down kingdom, a backwards way of thinking, and yet it's the only way to peace and happiness. Everything else will lead to, well, something quite a bit less than peace and certainly not happy. Do you want the kind of joy... That, that God says is the fruit of the Spirit? Do you want the, the love and the patience and the kindness and the goodness? Do you want your life today to be a reflection of God and, and, and heaven? It's a good life. I want to tell you that. It is a good life when we follow Jesus. Jesus gives us one simple suggestion. This is how we have it. This is what we do. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. Abide, it's, it's not real complex. Um, time in God's word. 
understanding His revelation to us. That's important to abide with Him. Talking with God like we're talking to a friend, interacting with Him in real relationship, struggling with Him, asking Him questions, listening for His answers as we, as we study the Word, uh, regularly surrendering our life and our plans to Him. This is abiding and then obeying. Not, not just saying, okay, God, you can have my plans, but um, no, never mind, I'm going to do it my way anyway. No, we have to surrender our plans and then follow what He says. And, and then it's really important that we spend time with other Christians, other people who are following God, because it's when we hear their stories of faith that we're strengthened to trust God too. You may have a long history with Jesus, and this story is nothing new to you. You could tell 10 times as many stories about how God has led you than I've told tonight. You might be just beginning your journey, exploring these things for the first time, or you might be renewing your journey after a long hiatus. But whatever, whatever your situation is, God wants you to know two things. First of all, He has good plans for the next steps in your life. He loves you, and He has plans for your peace. And, and His plans, if we surrender to Him, are so much better than our plans could ever be. And secondly, He has plans for your future. He has plans for you to live in heaven with Him. He's got a, a home prepared for you, a, a dwelling place in His Father's house just for you. Now, this is the end of our Discovering Revelation series, but, but we want to keep exploring God's Word together. We want to keep rubbing shoulders with each other. We want to keep exploring God's path together. And on Tuesday, starting not this coming Tuesday, we'll give, you, give us a little bit of a break, but the following Tuesday, Jeff Ponell, raise your hand there, Jeff is going to be leading a small group Bible study um, that's going to explore the sanctuary and uh, Daniel and Revelation and kind of these cover some of the same territory, but more in a, a more intimate setting and, and, and more in depth. And that's going to be a fantastic study. He's done it uh, recently, and uh, he can tell you that everybody that, that attended really grew from that. So definitely um, a good opportunity for you. And starting this coming Sabbath morning at 9.30, we're going to do in, in the pastor's study at the front of the church, we're going to do a small, uh, a small group kind of Bible study exploring what it's like if you're new here. You know, maybe you're um, recently uh, deciding to be baptized or interested in, in being part of the church, or maybe um, you just want to explore what an active Christian life is like. And we're going to do some Bible study and some practical Christian stuff, and we're going to look at any question that you might have. We'll, we'll um, explore those things together. And whether you join one of these things or not, I think God wants you to see this journey that we've been on as the beginning of a path, His path, the direction He wants to take you. And He wants you to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. He wants us to surrender. Would you be willing to surrender to Jesus tonight, to let Him take your future in His hands and to be in charge, your hands off the wheel and His leading? If you would, would you stand with me? I'm going to have a short prayer, and, and while I do, I want to ask Claudia and, and uh, Amanda to come up, and they're going to sing a song after this prayer. Lord, I, I want to ask for your will to be done in our lives. Everybody here that stood has said that we want you to be our leader. Lord, we've got all kinds of plans, all kinds of things that we have in mind that we should experience or should have or um, what we think is our right, and we just want to lay all of those down right now and say, Lord, your will be done and not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. When life lets you down and you feel more broken than whole When the wounds go deeper than words 
And you can't tell a soul I may not know what you're going through I may not make that high mountain move But one thing I found That I really want you to know If it matters to you, it matters to the Master. He wants to share the burdens you bear. Whisper peace when your world gets shattered. If it's your greatest joy or your deepest pain, Or you're really needing an answer If it matters to you It matters to the Master Friend, do you think The maker and giver of life Is far too busy to care About your struggles and strife He sees the sparrow that falls to the ground And he hears the tears that don't make a sound If you only knew How precious you are in his sight If it matters to you It matters to the master He wants to share the burdens you bear Whisper peace when your world gets shattered If it's your greatest joy or your deepest pain Or you're really needing an answer If it matters to you It matters to the Master If it's your greatest joy or your deepest pain Or you're really needing an answer If it matters to you It doesn't only matter to you If it matters to you It matters to the Master